Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yes, ladies and gentlemen and children of all ages, it is time once again for The Bookcase. Welcome back. I'm Charlie Gibson. I'm the male host, the older host, the wiser host, and I'm joined by my daughter. And a child of an age. I am Kate Gibson. I am his daughter and co-host. How are you? I've got I've got one more horror show for you. And this one was sort of unexpected when we did the horror author series, where we talked to a, a series of horror authors on the show. I got invited to sort of a release weekend, a release weekend party for Chris Golden's new book, which is called The House of Last Resort, which, by the way, got a nice write-up in the New York Times three days ago. And so The House of Last Resort, they had this little party in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and Chris asked me if I wanted to come, and I was like, of course, because I just wanted to meet him in person. He was so nice during the series. And so, and it turned out there was a conglomeration of, like, amazing authors there that I could fangirl out to, if you can turn fangirl into a verb. Please don't be too disgusted with me. And uh, I asked Chris if it would be okay to get a, a room full of writers together. And, and so this podcast came about because of that. Well, if you'll allow me to yeah. interject a word here, since we're now about, 17, going. We're about 17 minutes into the podcast. First <laughs> of all, uh, Chris Golden was the centerpiece for this conference in yes. New Hampshire. Yes. Second of all, Chris Golden is not with us. He's not. Uh, the reason is he was supposed to be on Katie's panel, but he got sick. But she had three terrific writers that she'll tell you about in a minute if she lets me in again. <laughs> and it is sort of a different podcast of The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie because it is The Bookcase Hits the Road. Kate went to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and they invited her to host one of the panels with four prominent writers at the conference. And then Chris got sick. But still, and I would say again, as somebody who is very skeptical, not skeptical, I'm just not crazy about horror writing. But these three writers, as you'll hear, as Katie moderates the panel, I think they make a very good case for horror writing being very approachable. Okay, so now you can come in and tell us about the three writers. Well, first of all, I I just want to make a small pitch. Read The House of Last Resort by Chris Golden. It's amazing. But the three authors are amazing too. So Jennifer McMahon, we spoke to during our series. The books that she most recently released, My Darling Girl, was just incredible. I love listening to her philosophy and horror. I very much, I I spent a bunch of time with her during this weekend and I, I really enjoyed getting to know her. Paul Tremblay is a legend. He's also a math teacher, which I just, I, I, I love that about him. A Head Full of Ghosts is probably his best known book, but the one that's coming out this year is called Horror Movie. And as a matter of fact, I went to one of his panels and he read from his new book. He read two chapters and I just thought, oh, that sounds so great. And after it was over, he came over and shook my hand and handed me the new book and I did a little dance. So that's how much of a fool I made of myself there. And the last panelist, Victor Laval, 
whose book Lone Women was actually one of the notable books of 2023 on the New York Times. It was my first time talking to him. We didn't talk to him during our series. And frankly, if, if you'd let me have a few more Thursdays, I'm sure he would have come on and talked to us because I love his work as well. And all three of them are trailblazers in horror. If I can come back in. Yeah. And to let the audience, Kate gets excited. I do. To let the audience in <laughs> on a secret. Kate was very nervous about this. It's the first time that she's done a panel like this in front of a fairly large audience. And she asked her father for advice. This is the first time in somewhere over 40 years she's ever asked me for advice about anything. (laughs) Um, And, and, uh, you know, I just said, keep it moving and make it entertaining. She did. I think she did a very good job, as you'll hear. And in the spirit of redundancy, she will now introduce those three writers that she just told you about as we begin the conference in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, with three very accomplished horror writers. Welcome to the Bookcase Podcast, recording from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. As all of you know, in our live audience, The weekend came about to celebrate the new Chris Golden release, The House of Last Resort. And Chris was going to join us this evening, but he had to leave. Slacker. Uh, But we have a great panel ahead of us with three terrific authors, and I'm really glad that you all are here. Now, I know that you guys feel like these folks need no introduction, but I live in Podcastville, so I got to throw some intros for the folks at home. So first of all, if you haven't read The Ballad of Black Tom, you've really missed out, and His Lone Women made the New York Times 100 Notable Books of 2023, so please welcome Victor Lamont. Second, in my mind, she is the queen of the plot twist horror, and My Darling Girl, which came out this past year, was personal and beautiful and terrifying. Please welcome Jennifer McMahon. And finally, I have to introduce that one, too. Uh, If you haven't read A Head Full of Ghosts, which is my personal favorite, although Paul Barris Club requires an audible mention, please run, but do not walk to your local independent bookstore. Please welcome Paul Tremblay. As my first question, and I'll, I'll call on you guys each one at a time. When I looked up horror in the dictionary, because I know how to use a dictionary, uh, it says a painful or intense fear, dread, or dismay, an intense aversion or repugnance. So given the definition of the word as Webster defines it, and I just defined it, are these words, I mean, is that a good way to describe the feelings you're trying to engender in your audience? Paul. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a great question. I know. I kind of feel like at conventions like these, like we sort of try to talk like why, why horror? Like, why do we do this? And I usually fall upon like, why not horror? Like to me, that's just, I think of horror as like, I'm trying to like a, a great horror story reveals a terrible truth. And if it rings true, I find that weirdly hopeful, even if it's super disturbing or even repugnant, just because of the fact that, oh, this writer recognizes that something is terribly wrong. And, and I, I take a little bit of comfort from that. Jennifer, same question. Intense, painful fear, dread, or dismay, aversion, or repugnance? Repugnance. Repugnance. (laughs) Gosh. Um, I mean, horror can be all of those things or none of those things in a way. For me, horror is when I look inside my own heart and look at my deepest fears and kind of peel back the layers and pull what's in the darkest corners out and take a look at it and kind of poke at it with sticks and walk around it and ask it questions. And that for me is the heart of true horror and why I write what I write. And it can be all those things or none of those things. 
Fair enough. Yeah. Victor? There can be horror in love, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Often is. Often is. <laughs> uh, I think that the intensity part of it is uh, what I kind of focused on there. And that idea of uh, facing intense feeling feels uh, like one of the joys of horror and maybe living in a world or a country or a time or whatever where the desire is very much to avoid facing things clearly uh, and talking honestly about the world, about one's life. Uh, I guess I always cherish horror because if nothing else, it's willing to speak very clearly about hard things to me. And I need someone to do that. That's interesting. And that that actually leads to my next question. It's been written time and time again that horror reflects what we as a society are frightened of. I think everybody in the audience is familiar with that. 50s, 60s, nuclear testing, bam, giant bugs and body snatchers. 90s, you get serial killers, bam, Hannibal Lecter. So what do you guys think of as our modern monster? What are we frightened of right now? And what do you think we'll be seeing more of in the next five to 10 years in horror lit? I think climate change is a huge one. I would agree. Certainly climate change, I think, even whether it's conscious or unconscious, is bubbling underneath so many kinds of stories. And like tech would be the thing. Although I have to admit, I every time I watch a thing where the idea is that technology is the evil, I always feel like it lets human beings off the hook too much, you know? Interesting. Uh, like, I, I fear human beings a lot more than I fear tech. And I really do fear tech, but I just fear humans much more. Interesting. Paul? I'm going to mention one book because it, it, it goes towards what uh, Victor was just talking about, the humans and the tech and the, the connection. It was published this year. It's called The Maniac by Benjamin Labatat. And I'm, apologies if I'm not saying his name right. It's published as a nonfiction novel. And it's not published as horror, but it's real. It's nonfiction. He, he basically, it's about um, this Hungarian mathematician, a real guy, Johnny von Neumann, who was there in the first half of the 20th century for these giant leaps in mathematics. He was there for the nuclear bomb and it helped create for the U.S. government the utterly terrifying notion of mutually assured destruction. He was there for the first computer and his philosophies on AI are what are being employed now. It's the book <laughs> is the most terrifying cosmic horror novel I've ever read. Mm. And partly it's because of, you know, this human who's an insanely smart human is clearly also insane and like is coming up with this monstrous stuff and they just keep doing it because it's like, well, that's the next thing to do without like any thought as to beyond five minutes in the future kind of thing. To me, that's what the humans and the technology thing that I fear that you were talking about is there are these really smart people. They refuse to look more than five minutes ahead. And also these same kind of people also refuse to look five minutes in the past either. Which I think is interesting. I mean, do you feel like we have, and I guess I'll ask you, Victor, first, do you feel like we have really felt the effects of the real world horror that we've seen in the last five years in terms of social justice, the pandemic? I mean, has that become reflected in the horror that we're reading? In fact, actually, my my feeling or my belief is like a lot of, say, publishing and then also I've been doing some work moving into like TV and film. And one of the refrains that keeps coming back, as like I say in TV and film, as I'm trying to sell horror projects, is let's make sure we let the execs know it's going to be fun. It's hard, but it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Because uh, heaven forbid we would give viewers or readers something that would be frightening or cut deep or anything like that. And there's like an almost an assumption that people don't want to think about these things. So let's not talk about these things. And to me, it's 
frustrating to say the least because I said, that's how we got here. Mm. Right? So the right. idea of let's, let's do, in 20 years, it'll be time to talk about the climate in fiction. Mm -hmm. So just wait a little longer. You'll be like, all right, we'll all be on one ice flow <laughs> and you'll finally tell me it's time. And then they'll be like, no, 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 people are too sad yeah. on the ice flow. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I think horror is an excellent lens to talk about those things Absolutely. with. You know, we can write a climate change novel and put a monster in there mm -hmm. and people are going to read it and maybe not see it as a climate change novel and maybe not be bogged down by, oh, another novel about climate change. They're going to be like, oh, cool, a monster. Yes. But they might learn a thing or two about climate change and get thinking about climate change and have conversations mm -hmm. about climate change. I agree. I find that odd, Victor, because I would find that antithetical. It seems to me like publishing film, television, you would hope, would say, let's use our medium to help people process <laughs> everything they've been through in the last five years. Not so that much, That is no? the kindest uh, <laughs> take on what anybody is saying. I mean, and they're running businesses, right? So what they're saying is, how do we sell this widget? You know what I mean? And then all of us are sneakily trying to say, use this widget. It seems to be there's a lot of like producers and studios that they say they want horror, but these people trying to make it don't want horror. They just think, oh, it's hot now. Yeah. Like, I can't tell you how many... Producers have said to me, it's like, we want horror, but it can't be, it can't be too grim. Like the things are too grim out there. And like, we want it to be like happy enough. People's like, well, you don't want horror. Yeah. Surely you don't want my horror. We've all met the folks at the cocktail parties where when you say, what do I write? Oh, what, what, what do you write? Would I have heard of anything that you've written? And then yeah. you say, oh, I don't read horror. How do you respond to that? I'm sure you two both have had the experience of like going to a, like a wider like book festival where like we're like the only few people working in the horror. So like it is weird, like what you go through in your own head when people ask, oh, what do you write? I'm like, oh, this isn't going to go well. <laughs> um, you know, and I've had times where I've met like some very lovely British writers and like, oh, I couldn't possibly read that stuff. And I'm like, yeah. But that night I remember like I was up at like three and I was like, why do I say that? Like, <laughs> why did I say, of course, you're not supposed to read that stuff. I should say something like you should read that stuff or I don't know. Yeah, uh, it is yeah. like just this weird thing. I mean, can you get people to recognize? I mean, uh, do you ever get to respond? Oh, really? You've never read Hamlet? I mean, like, mm. uh, you know, uh, do you ever get to open people's eyes on that level about? I mean, because in some ways, uh, you know, Night by Ellie Wiesel is a horror novel. It's totally. a horror yeah, there are so yeah. many horror novels that people know and love. And, you know, Shirley Jackson is horror, mm. but a lot of people don't consider her horror. Lord of the Flies, I consider a mm. horror novel, and mm -hmm. everyone reads that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of horror novels that are out there, and people have a preconceived notion. You know, you say you write horror, you say you write something cre a little on the creepy side, and they kind of take a step back, and, <laughs> well, I don't do that. Really? Maybe you do, mm. you know? Do you find the same thing to be true, Victor? In particular, as I've moved into horror more fully, the amount of work that would be required to maybe change the mind of this person could instead be spent talking to some people who already are interested in me and what I do, or more importantly, who are interesting in a different way, you know? Uh, and so I, I definitely used to be like, oh no, you know, beloved is a ghost story, all this kind of thing. But now I usually, if they say, would I have heard anything you've written? I usually just say, probably not. Mm -hmm. And I just move on. <laughs> you know, Because even that question, I think, is a kind of... Uh, it's a test that I don't feel like taking, mm. right? Um, and so I just always feel like if, if that's the only reason I would matter to you is because you heard of me, then what kind of person are you? Mm -hmm. uh, and then I'm sure somebody else here is more interesting to talk to. Mm -hmm. you know? Can I hire you as my life coach? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I need that. And usually the follow-up question to like, 
what do you write? And I, and I tell them, and well, do you know Stephen King? So that's always, right. yeah, that's the follow-up question. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they've certainly heard of him. But to your point, I think also like there's a difference between horror curious and people who just would never. Right. Yeah. And I feel like I do entertain conversations certainly with horror curious. Yes. Those are the people who I would say, well, have you read Shirley Jackson yes. or Toni Morrison? Or then you might like. Yes. Because those are people who are saying, I'm just like, I'm unsure as opposed to like, that's silly. Yes. Right. You know, all these people who grew up reading Stephen King, like you can't suppress them anymore because they're still, you know, they, they've branched out. They're now reading other stuff and they want other stuff. Are we as readers of horror, as masters of the, of the horror lit genre, are we fearless and courageous or are we frightened of everything? I mean, speaking for myself, I think I'm frightened of everything. At least for me, a lot of the reason I also dive into horror so much is because everything sort of makes me a little nervous. But then I feel like, well, then let's, let's talk about it because I can't ignore it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am an anxious and fearful person. I was an anxious <laughs> and fearful kid who grew into an anxious and fearful adult. And I think when I was first drawn to horror and to reading scary stuff and to watching scary movies, it was because I was so anxious and fearful and because it made me feel more brave. Yeah. I could, you know, tackle these fears on paper by reading a book. I could watch a movie and I could put it away. And I could come away from the end of the story or the movie feeling like I'd gone through this like catharsis and I'd traveled on this journey and I'd faced something and I felt more brave. Mm. Man, I wish that was the case for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I can't put it away. <laughs> it stays with me. You know, I'm a card carrying scaredy cat. Like as a child, I would sleep with uh, a fortress of stuffed animals around my head until I was 25. Uh, <laughs> until <laughs> no, last I mean, night. Yeah. I almost sort of like call that like the fun horror as opposed to like the real life scared of everything when we think of the worst case scenarios. But like, it's ridiculous that I'm whatever age I am. I'm not going to admit it. Um, but like, I still go up the basement stairs quickly if I have mm -hmm. to shut the light off or if I go to bed first, so I'm like, oh, I'm going to be a good husband and leave Lisa's light on on her side of the bed because <laughs> I don't want to be in bed by myself in the dark and in, in the yep. big house kind of thing. But the wonderful thing yeah. about doing what we do is that we get to do this for a living and we get to share our fears with everyone yeah. else. We yeah. get to put it on paper. Yeah. And it never makes me feel yeah. better, though. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm excited when I have something done, but yeah, in terms of like, it's never felt like a catharsis. Like I thought sometimes it would, and that's been kind of a disappointment that it hasn't. Do you find interviews as a horror author harder that way because you are working through things? So to a certain extent, doesn't most interviewers want to put you on the couch? I'll start with you on that one, Jennifer. <laughs> Every book that I write starts out with one of my deepest, darkest fears. Mm -hmm. So therefore, when I go out to talk about the book... I'm going to expose parts of myself, right. um, whether I want to or not, or whether I mean to or not, even if I'm talking about the character or whatever. But I'm me and I'm an open person and I'm happy to talk about my fears and share my anxieties with the world. And um, yeah, it, it does become a therapy session, <laughs> but it's okay. Yeah. Do you find that? tough sometimes because uh, I, I i'm reading a stephen king book where he's like stop trying to put me on the couch please uh, stop you know right. stop trying to examine my brain i feel warmer toward writers when they do open that door a little bit mm. which is so to the stephen king of it all uh one of the things that made me fall in love with him as a kid was those bits in the back of the collections yeah. where he would explain how the stories came to be i would sometimes like that more than the story because it, he would just like, I was on a road and then I found this can and inside the can was a worm. And I thought, what if the worm talked to me or something like that? And I go, oh, that's so interesting, Stephen King. <laughs> and then at a certain point, he stopped being Stephen King. He became Uncle Stevie. 
as he would call himself in the thing, right? And I really do still love that when writers can give that little extra bit, right? But then, you know, but, but it's not a requirement of the job, I guess. But I do like it. If there are any fans of Stephen Graham Jones in the audience, if you're not reading his acknowledgments, his internal monologues at the yeah. end of his books where he's like, hey, I liked video stores. Did you like video stores? <laughs> I read this book the other day and it was kind of interesting. It has nothing to do with what I'm doing here. But let me tell you about it. I, I love that. It's, it's wonderful. If anybody listens to the bookcase, which, by the way, I'm sure you all do <laughs> religiously. Um, but I ask a couple of rapid fire questions. Um, before I get to them, though, I want to ask about horror literature versus uh, scary movies. Because scary movies get timing in a way that you guys don't get, you know, they get the music mm -hmm. and the buildup and the thing and the creaky doors and the what have you. How as writers do you guys use language for timing to bring scares into your work? I'll start with Paul. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> like, I honestly try not to think, is this scary? I just think, you know, I'm very fortunate that my publisher gives me a pretty wide latitude as to what could be considered horror or not. Like, I feel like I'm much more in control of moving the reader emotionally, you know, or what's disturbing can mm -hmm. certainly be more recognized. But like what scares you might not scare me. It's so subjective. So, you know, when I try to think about is this scary or not, I sort of like I, I spin my wheels. I'm like, oh, I can't. I don't know. So I try not to necessarily think of the scare. So in some way. ways you have to let that um, go. Yeah. So, but in terms of like the difference between a, a movie, you know, the horror movie where it's much, just much more visceral, you know, I've always threatened my editor with like, oh, I'm going to do a pop-up scare page. We're going to have a pop-up page <laughs> because I'm always making my poor publisher do like typographical stuff. So how about a hologram? You know, <laughs> for me, the, the advantage that the horror novel or the horror literature has is to me, that sort of that lingering effect, like to, to get into like this space that movies just can't get into. It feels much more like that the, the book sort of worms in, into you in a different way because of the language. Mm. Like the, the act of reading is such a different thing. And Victor was talking about like, you know, whether people see things or have an internal monologue. It's just, a, it's a different affect than, than watching it. If you're in a horror movie, you get a captive audience. You get a dark room, closed door seat. If I'm reading something that's too scary for me, I can close it and put it down. That doesn't mm. seem like an extra no, challenge for no, you? No, it's there. Because also, like, if you're in a movie, you, like, maybe most of the time you're there with friends or, or a loved one or something, and it can be, like, this fun communal thing. Mm -hmm. And that feels a little bit safer. You know, the scariest movies for me is if I'm watching it by myself. That's when it feels a little bit more like a book. What about you, Jennifer? How do you all hold your audience captive since you don't get the dark lights and the, and the popcorn and all that? I think I do it. <sighs> I, was, I was just thinking about what you were saying, Paul, about... Um, the differences between books and movies. And, and I think that one of the things for me is we're, we're inside our characters' heads, mm -hmm. right? That's what makes it truly terrifying is we are, the number one goal is to give a reader a character that they can relate to in some way and want to go on a journey with. And they'll go through this journey where these crazy things happen and they're feeling the fear because you're showing them what it's really like. No, I just figured out like the better answer for myself because okay. I didn't really no, answer. No, no sorry. <laughs> It'll be really quick. I'm sorry. And then Victor, <laughs> um, like a movie is like a passive experience, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. they're showing mm -hmm. you the monster. They're showing you this. Yeah. Whereas as the reader, you have to, act, you're actively creating this. And to me, that's oh, yeah. scarier. Mm. Right? Yeah. 
I can see something in my own head yeah. that is way scarier right, than anything sure. yes. I can see on a movie. Like I, I think I go back to one of my very favorite short stories is the monkey's paw uh-huh. and that final scene where there's the knock at the door yeah. and I, you just imagine what's behind there. If they got to open it, it's terrifying. Yeah. Absolutely terrifying. So my mind can go places. All of our minds can go places right. that no, the, no movie can take us. I for think sure. for I think. sure. I agree with all of those ideas and maybe the only other thing we, I think we have as writers is like, is just pacing, mm. you know? Mm. Uh, and the, when do you slow that reader down? When do you speed them up toward the thing you want? And even what you were saying about that you can put a book down. I mean, obviously sometimes you put a book down cause it's not affecting you, but if you put a book down because it's affecting you so much, that strikes me as a sign that the book is really working, uh-huh. you know, and th- the fact that you can put it down because you know something bad is coming, but you're not there yet. I think it only makes that moment when you come back to that book <laughs> even more frightening and even more powerful. So we'll take a break and come back with more of the conference in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Kate leading the way in just a moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. I'll start my rapid fire questions. A horror that has aged really well. A horror story that has aged really well. I'll start with Paul. I mean, I'm a huge Shirley Jackson fan. So, mm-hmm. you know, all of her stuff, I think maybe a, a book that hasn't been read as much by most people, The Sundial. Mm-hmm. I think if that came out today, it would be like, you know, New York Times pieces about it because it's essentially about this obnoxiously rich aristocratic family infighting. And they think the world is ending like the next day or in two days, a weirdly thing. And it's just this weird pressure cooker 
Very funny, like all her stuff. Very funny, very mm-hmm. strange. Mm-hmm. about you, Jennifer? A story that means as much to you now as it did when you first read it? Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And that's one of those that I reread again and again. And it amazes me that she wrote it when she was 18 years old. And I just, I think it's the best monster story ever written. And it's an incredible study on what is a monster and who is the monster in the story. And my absolute favorite parts of the book are from the monster's point of view. Was that what hooked you? Was that your gateway drug, your horror gateway drug? No. Um, well, in a sense, I when I was a pretty little kid, I loved all the Universal Monster movies, of mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. But as far as reading a book, I borrowed my mother's copy of the Amityville Horror. Oh. <laughs> and it was the first truly terrifying thing I ever read. And it still haunts me to this day. I haven't reread it as an adult because I think that it won't hold up (laughs) to what I've built it up as in my mind. The best part was, so I love this book so much that I loved to torture my little, my brother and all my little friends by reading my favorite passages out loud. And I brought it to a slumber party once. (laughs) Yeah. And I read it to my little girlfriends and everyone was in tears and screaming and freaking out. (laughs) And they all ran downstairs to get mom. And I I wasn't invited to a lot of slumber parties. With the popular girls after that. <laughs> lots of slumber parties followed. Lots yeah, of, no, yeah, right. No, oh, not so much. Invite. Yeah, yeah. No, okay, not invited. Enough. Not invited. The weird McMahon kids, not invited. <laughs> she can stay at home with her creepy books. Uh, so the last rapid fire question. So I've inadvertently complained about interviewers uh, analyzing you guys. So, of course, I'm going to close with a rapid fire question that analyzes you guys. Biggest fear. Paul. Oh, man, everything. Uh, nuclear Holocaust as a child of the 80s. That's when like my nightmares became much less fun. So like I can't, I won't watch movies that reference it or or do it. Can't go there. Fair enough. What about you? Something terrible happening to one of my family members. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty pretty straightforward. Just something happening uh, to our kids. Yeah, it's just the that would. I mean, there's other things I'm sure, but that's the one that I do. Yeah, but that's sometimes like a serious one. Up. I was thinking like spider. I'm afraid of balloons. There's my fun one. Writers out here, if anybody wants to rate the balloon horror. Fine. The fun one is, especially if I go to a hotel, the first thing I check is the hotel bed. If it's a proper hotel bed where it's like, it's against the floor, I feel better. But if I am in a hotel and there's space under the thing, I'm like, God damn it. I'm going to have to like jump into bed and lift my legs really quickly. (laughs) (laughs) And I actually, I think mine is somewhat similar. It's uh, any bathroom with the shower curtain closed. Mm. I cannot go in anyone else's house too. I, I kick it. I, mm. I got to pull it open every time because I'm absolutely sure something shows up if you leave that closed for too long. So like even in the middle of the night, going to the bathroom, my wife does not, subscribe to that and her she just subscribes to like if the bathtub's dirty why don't we close this yeah so no one so even we don't have to see it till we clean it but in the middle of the night i walk in and if that's shut i really like freeze you and, really should have worked this near your wedding vows i want to cherish shower door curtain open yeah yes. this is what i'm saying Thank you guys so much for thank joining you. me. I really thank appreciate you. it. This was yeah. really fun. Thank you guys. And thank you and thank for sticking you. around. Yes. Thank very you. Thank you. Did. Thank you. So you had nerves. And as football players say, once they take the first hit, the nerves go away. Did yours? 
Yeah, it did. Absolutely. And then, of course, you know, I sort of lost track of the time as I got fascinated by the conversation and we started talking about books. But those people still intimidate me. I was telling you when I first walked into the hotel lobby, there was a table of Chris Golden and Paul Tremblay and Jennifer and Victor, and they were all having a beer. And and I put on my my lanyard. And by the way, my, my husband loved his lanyard, by the way, David Cannon, my producer, and, and the guy who made that all happen, by the way, and the reason it all sounded good, his lanyard said, guest of Catherine Gibson. He loved that. He took a ton of pictures of it. He thought that was terrific. But uh, I was intimidated to approach that table. I, I Like I say, I fangirled out. You know, one thing that I think is interesting, and I we had to cut some of it for time because uh, as much as I loved the conversation, I know you guys have things to do. We cut a question out about horror and glee and comedy and horror and how they're related. And I just wanted to say, I thought it was interesting. All three of them said that it was something that sort of happened by accident. It wasn't something that you could really try to do and try to achieve or that none of them had sort of tried to achieve it and done it consciously, which I thought was interesting and, and unexpected. And would you have been in as intimidated if it were three people from a different genre? I don't know. I, I have a sort of, that's probably bad for an interviewer to admit this, but I, I find the intellect of writers intimidating. I find the task of sitting down and committing yourself to writing a book the way that they do. I don't know. I find that to be an almost untouchable art. And so I, I don't know, maybe, but but also probably, yeah, maybe, maybe not too, because again, this is a real fangirl genre for me. And again, I felt like I was amongst my people. <laughs> well, I, I hope when you come to family gatherings, you also feel that you're among your people, even though we're perhaps not <laughs> ensconced with horror novels. Anyway, I do feel they made a good case for the genre. I do feel they made a good case for what they do. And I think they also showed the intelligence that you're just talking about. There's good writing in some of these books and in some. And uh, and I, but I, you've led me to that. A conclusion, and you've led me to the places where I would find good writing. So I thank you for that, sort of. Anyway, <laughs> that's our podcast for the week. That's Kate Goes on the Road. That's The Bookcase Takes the Road. This week, we're just wrapping up with the folks that make this podcast possible. I did not ask for a coda from our guests, so I hope you enjoyed our panel, and thank you for listening. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with Sure Can Productions. Asal Asanapur is our producer. Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster, and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America, and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean, Vika Aronson, and Brenda Salinas Baker at ABC Audio. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? 
Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.